Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Welcome to our September edition of our live How to Fix Democracy discussion, chat, conversation, brought as always by the Bertelsmann Foundation of North America uh, and Humanity in Action. Um, uh, in association with LitHub, who, as I said, uh, are broadcasting this live through my Keenon show. Last week, we had Anne Applebaum talking um, about her new book, Twilight of Democracy. And to match Anne, now we have another intellectual superstar, um, Timothy Schneider, whose new book, Our Malady, also is a book in many ways about uh, the twilight of our democracy. Um, uh, and also, if, uh, as if Tim is not enough, we have uh, Michael Abramowitz, who's the president of Freedom House and one of the world's leading authorities on the state of democracy around the world. So it's a real thrill to have both uh, Tim and Mike on the show. A couple of housekeeping notes. We'll talk for about 45 minutes and then we'll take questions from the audience. So please put those questions into your Q&A and our trusted Nate will read those uh, after about 45 minutes discussion. So let's get going. There's an awful lot to talk about. Uh, Timothy Schneider is, uh, doesn't need an introduction from me, is one of America's leading historians and writers. Uh, his new book, Our Malady, Lessons in Liberty from a Hospital Bed, is a very short, troubling, bracing, dark read about the state not only of his own health, but of American democracy. Uh, Tim, briefly to start off, what, what is our malady? Our malady is that we've gotten used to pain. Our malady is that we've gotten used to suffering. I mean, when we think about this year, the question isn't how you know, 300,000 people have died, which is what it's gonna be by the end of the year. The question is, what have we done to make that happen? You know, when I'm in Europe, people ask me not like, how did the, what kind of accident was there? People ask, how did you make that happen? What had to be done? And what, I, what I'm interested in is how Americans have separated thoughts about their health from thoughts about their freedom. And how when we talk about freedom and don't talk about health, don't talk about our bodies, then the way we talk about freedom is impoverished. If we don't include health and healthcare in our notion of what it takes to build up a free life, we're basically creating a hollow idea of what it means to be free. So, our malady is the fact that we're dying before we should, that we're too sick than we ought to be. Our malady, though, also is a political evil around all of that, which makes it possible. Uh, Mike, you read, uh, I know you've read Tim's book as well. Uh, what do you make of his observations about this intimate relationship between the quality of health care and the quality of a political system, particularly democracy and individual liberty? Well, first of all, it's a great honor to be with both of you, and especially Tim, whose work I've admired for quite some time, including his work on the Holocaust. Uh, I, it's a very powerful book, and on a personal level, I was, I was deeply moved by it. Um, uh, just really, honestly, learning about what Tim has gone through on a personal level over the last year and kind of connecting it to larger truths. Um, so I, it's just a, I, I could not more highly recommend this book, and as a it's just an indictment of the healthcare system in, in our country. Uh, it is really very powerful. That said, uh, I'd like to, you know, noodle a little bit on whether or not, you know, the connection between healthcare and democracy. I certainly feel that uh, uh, we've, we've, long, we've long recognized as a society that uh, economic and, and social rights are, uh, are, are up there with uh, political rights and civil rights. You know, we at Freedom House mainly focus on political and civil rights. Uh, that's just due to the history of my organization. But uh, I think, you know, Tim makes a pretty powerful case that, that, that 
the kinds of the human, the, the economic rights and social rights, which include the right to health care, uh, is, is a missing piece of, of the American uh, political uh, story. Tim, your, your coverage of, of the American medical system suggests that it's been financialized like the rest of the American economy. Is that fair? Is, is your critique essentially of a, uh, the, the, the neoliberal consequences of a privatized medical system? Let me, let me, let me answer that by starting where, where Mike left off. And I want to, I want to, I want to echo Mike's thanks. Um, I'm, I'm very glad to be here. I'm very glad to see, to see Mike again. Um, we've been cooperating one way or another for quite a long time now. I'm very happy we can, we can do it again. I want to pick up where Mike left off and get to the question because it seems to me that, you know, even this distinction between economic and social rights on the one side and then individual or negative freedoms on the other side doesn't really make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense to me anymore is because I almost died. And when I was, when I, when, when I was too sick to talk, I didn't have freedom of speech. It wasn't a meaningful idea. When I couldn't move my body, I didn't have freedom of assembly. It wasn't a meaningful idea. When I thought that I wasn't going to make it, when I didn't see a future, then freedom itself made no sense because freedom is all about unpredictability and choices and the, and the uncertainty of the future. When you're dead, you don't have any of those things. And those are like very basic elementary human experiences, which we are all going to have and which many of us have gone through in situations far worse than mine. So I think, I think in other words, I think Jefferson was right when he talked about the pursuit of happiness as a physical pursuit, as a bodily pursuit. I mean, we talk about the pursuit of happiness as if it was some abstraction, but Jefferson really meant that we were going to be out there in the world, healthy, working for things, going after things, pursuing things in a, in a, in a, in a physical sense. So I, I don't actually think the rest of our freedoms make any sense without health. I don't think this distinction between you know, positive freedoms and negative freedoms or between social rights and civil rights actually works. And I'm, I'm struck on a global level that, I mean, Mike could do this better than me, but that the countries that, are, that rate freer than we do usually have better health systems than we do. I'm also struck that as, as our freedom rankings have gone down, our life expectancy has also, has also tanked. So I think there's a, there's a logical connection. I think there's also an, 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 empirical, an empirical connection. But I mean, to get, to get as close to your question as, as I can, um, I think talking about neoliberalism and privatization is, is the right way to go. The way I would start though is to say this, uh, my body's not an object. My body's not a widget. Your body's not an object. It's not a widget. Decisions, if we say healthcare is a right, then what we're saying is we're not objects. Um, my body is not an object. My body is my body is me, and therefore my body is not something that a private equity firm should make money on by kicking me out of the hospital too soon, or by not letting me into the hospital when I need to be let into the hospital. That I think is where the line has to be drawn. Which isn't to say I'm against markets. I mean, if you want if you want a world of choice among objects as a person, markets are the way to go. But the moment you are in that market as an object you're not free. And that's, that's why we need to talk about, about healthcare as a right, because we need to take our bodies out of the market and put them back where they belong, which is part of ourselves, as something which is invested with, with freedom. So yes, I mean, that's, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, I say yes to the question and that's how I put it. Tim, you, you note in the beginning of the book that what dominated you when you thought you might be on your deathbed, and it sounds, at least from the book, that you came very close to dying, uh, was rage. Was your anger then directed metaphysically or was it directed at the American medical, medical system uh, or perhaps the political system? And, and, and of course, in, in your narrative, it's not just American doctors who were blamed to, for, for the mistakes made with respect to your health. There were also some responsibility of Austrian doctors too. But um, where, where was the rage uh, in, in, in your, uh, when, when, why, why, when you thought you were on your deathbed? So when, when I was very sick at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, um, I had these very strong emotions, much stronger than I've had in other parts of life. And I've talked to other people who've had similar experiences. And as soon as I could, I started, I started making little notes about what they were like because I wanted to remember them and I wasn't sure if I was going to. And it's kind of you to remember this. Yeah, rage was the first one. I mean, the first thing I wrote in my diary after I could write uh, again was only rage, lonely rage. 
but it's it was metaphysical that's exactly the right word for it it was metaphysical i wasn't thinking at that point whose fault is this us healthcare you know i wasn't thinking in those categories i was thinking there's a universe in which i don't exist and i'm raging against that universe i want to stay here i want to keep affecting things i want to keep being part of the lives of the people i care about or who care about me that's as far as it went that's what that rage was it was about it was about existence i was raging against a world where i might not be that was it later and so i wasn't angry at the doctors i wasn't angry at the system because i wasn't thinking at that level later as i as i turned the diaries into the book and as i started to think about the way things work in this country i i i became angry but angry in a different way i mean i'm i'm angry that so many people are denied care i'm angry that roughly half americans don't have access to care i'm angry that we we you know we basically i think we should put in the active voice we we've, we we have killed off 200,000 americans who should not have died um we we i'm angry about things like that i'm angry that americans too many americans have an idea of freedom which is too restrictive i'm angry that a country that calls itself the land of the free has a has too narrow an idea of freedom so I am angry about things now, you know, later on, but that's not the same thing as the rage that I felt for those couple of days. So that rage that I felt for those couple of days was me trying to stay alive. Um, that's what that was. Mike, uh, last year I was in Vienna where, where Tim is now uh, interviewing uh, the great Bulgarian essayist, the political thinker, Ivan Krastev. And after our interview, he took me out onto the streets. I think he lives around the corner uh, from, from, from uh, Tim's place. He took me to the, the, the cafe uh, Kafka in, in, in Vienna. Everyone was reading newspapers and he said to me, that's why Vienna is, is the heart of democracy because everyone sits in cafes reading newspapers. Of course, when we went, most people were online. Uh, but in your global perspective, Mike, in terms of the general health of democracy, uh, should Ivan have taken me to a couple of Viennese hospitals to show me the, the strength of the Viennese, the Austrian healthcare system. Because in Tim's narrative, this contrast between the citizen-rooted nature of, of, of Austrian healthcare and this financialized American one is, is very troubling and vivid. How important, from your point of view, from the work of Freedom House, is this relationship between... Uh, if you like, a, a socialized medical system and a healthy democracy? Well, let, let me make a couple points if I could. First of all, just piggybacking off, off of Tim's last intervention, I, I do think one can criticize, and he does it brilliantly, uh, the, the American healthcare system, but you know, we would have had many less deaths with respect to COVID because of if, if the leadership in our country had been more adept in dealing with it. You know, there are democracies, uh, you know, like Taiwan or South Korea or others that have, you know, Germany would be an, another one that have done a very good job of mitigating the worst impact of this. And so I think, you know, you know part of it may be the system, but part of it is just the current political leadership. And I think that that point needs to be said. I also think we have to also recognize that there are countries in the world and uh, where, where, where people recognize them as having done a good job on, on healthcare. You know, one would be Cuba, which I don't think of as uh, a, a strong uh, a democratic system. In fact, it's, it's one of the worst and least free countries in the world from, from a Freedom House perspective. So, you know, I think the, the connection between healthcare and democracy is, is, I think, not always as uh, uh, linear as Tim says. I mean, I think, I mean, what, what I would prefer to say from a personal point of view, I'm, I'm, I'm very persuaded by him that one should do the things that he recommends with respect to healthcare because they would be a good thing to do on, a, on policy grounds. But I think that you can, you know, the United States, uh, you know, had, uh, you know, a lot of the trends that Tim First of all, I, I speak of this because not only have I work at Freedom House, but I also used to be a healthcare reporter for the Washington Post. That's how I started off my life. So I started off my professional career, you know, 30 years ago, looking at the beginnings of the impact of HMOs and, and kind of corporate medicine. So you know, that's a relatively new dimension of, 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 our, of, of, our, of our system here in America. And so I'm just, I, I think you can have a healthy democracy without... Uh, 
without a, a strong healthcare system, but I think having a strong healthcare system is, is worthwhile in and of its own accord. Well, Tim, there's nothing we like more uh, uh, in the How to Fix Democracy series than civil disagreement. Uh, do you agree with Mike? Uh, can the American democracy flourish with responsible political leadership and its privatized health system? Oh, uh, no. No, I don't think so. Uh, let me, I want to I, I I agree with Mike about democracy, though, because we're not, I mean, I was very careful to be talking about freedom. So even if we're talking to a place like Cuba, I would say, well, people in Cuba would be even less free if they had a terrible healthcare system, right? We probably would agree about that. So if, if what I'm saying is that freedom is an, health, health is an element of freedom. I'm not saying it's the only thing. I am saying though, that I think if, if, if we're gonna be consistent to our claim to be a free country, it's one of the things that you have to include. But now I'm gonna push the argument further and, and push back a little bit about Trump. So I don't think I would wanna, like I agree completely with, with Mike that if basically anybody else had been president, we would have lost fewer lives. I, I agree with that. And I think there's responsibility, there's personal responsibility to be borne by Mr. Trump and the people around him. I mean, I would go so far as to say that I think it's very likely that, you know, the word achievement is strange here, but the most remarkable achievement of his presidency is going to be that 300,000 Americans died unnecessarily in 2020. I think it's very likely that um, that's what he's going to be remembered for, because frankly, it took a lot of work to do it this badly. Uh, so, but that said, I want to push back against the idea that these things are completely disconnected. Let me start from a, a, an interesting statistic. If you want to know whether a county, an American county, voted for Trump in 2016, and you only could have one piece of information, the most useful piece of information to have is whether or not that county was in opioid-related public health crisis. I just don't think that can be a coincidence. I think there's a connection between Americans falling into various kinds of misery as a result of pain, mental and physical, and the hope for the kind of quick hit, easy answer politics that Mr. Trump provides. I think, I think there's a connection between people losing faith that the systems around them really work and the deterioration of their health, which makes it easier for someone like Mr. Trump to jump in. So I agree with Mike that it would be much, it would be much better if Mr. Trump weren't president. But I do think I disagree that there's that there's no connection between our health and the kinds of people that we choose to be our leaders. If or to put it even broader, our healthcare system as it exists produces unnecessarily not only death, but it produces fear and anxiety. And that fear and anxiety, which comes out of being unhealthy, but also comes out of fear of lack of access, anxiety about what happens when I'm sick, those emotions can then be manipulated and turned in different directions, which is one of the things that Mr. Trump does extremely well. He takes existing American emotions that he finds, and then he moves them towards different targets. So in that way as well, I also think there's a connection between um, unpredictable health care and the possibility for a certain kind of authoritarian politics. Uh, I, I thought that was one of the most uh, intriguing, actually, points in your book about the, you, you point out this connection between pain and, and voting for Trump. Let me not rephrase your point, but ask Mike more, a, a, more, a, a more dangerous question, perhaps from the point of view of Freedom House. Uh, Mike, Tim is suggesting that a vote that the vote for Trump is connected with pain and is also, he seems to be saying implicitly, at least, I don't want to put words into his mouth, it's a vote for authoritarianism. Where does Freedom House stand on that? Are people who vote for Trump, are they against democracy? No, uh, I, would not, I, would not agree, I would not agree with the, the question the way you phrased it. I, cer I certainly think that, I mean, I can just lay out the facts as we've seen them at Freedom House. I mean, for your viewers who may not know us, we've been tracking uh, the kind of global health, of, if you will, of, of, of democracy over the last 50 years. And, and we've been tracking the level of political rights and civil liberties. And there's no question that over the last 10 years, uh, the level of rights in, in the United States has, has been in decline. I would say that's started before Trump. 
but it's certainly accelerated under the un, under the president. Uh, so uh, we're still quite a free country, I think. I mean, I think Tim makes some very valid, you know, some very interesting provocative points about uh, about uh, about healthcare. I'm not here to defend or attack them. Really, I just I'm giving you my my honest reaction to them. I think that uh, I think that a vote for Trump, you know, people have the right to make you know the, the choices they want to. It's, it's it's not for me to superimpose my choices on that. I do think that. Uh, Trump has brought in some very disturbing elements of sort of authoritarian practice. I'm not saying he's an authoritarian, but I certainly think that, you know, the attacks on the media, the attacks on the rule of law, the corruption that has been uh, part of the administration is something to be concerned about from a, from a strength of democracy point of view. But, you know, people make choices about who they vote for all the time. It's not, I'm not going to sit here and say that I know better than people in Ohio or California, New York, uh, who they should vote for. And the choice of who's gonna be president is related to a lot of different things and people have to make their own choices on that. I don't, I don't think that's a cop out. I think, I think part of democracy is, 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 is respecting the choice of the, the voters. Uh, and uh, there, are, there, are, there are problems in our democracy by the end of the day, you have, to, you have to respect the choice of the voters. I think the one thing that I am concerned about, especially with this election is whether uh, the choice of the voters will be respected, whether there will be, you know, a full and accurate, you know, counting of all the votes. I mean, that's something that there's been a lot of press reports over the last several months that suggest that that could be a big problem here. But I think at the end of the day, democracy relies on respecting, you know, the choice of voters. Uh, Tim, some of the most memorable lines and comments in the book are about truth. You have a, a wonderful chapter called The Truth Will Set Us Free. You argue truth is like health. We miss it when it fails. Uh, you say the truth takes work. And what, what lines your narrative is this disappearance of truth, both on a personal and, and public level? You almost died because the doctors, for better or worse, missed the truth of your illness. And you find an America where truth seems to have disappeared, the decimation, for example, of local news through the big internet uh, companies. And of course, the appearance of what you seem to imply is a tyranny in America. What's the relationship between truth, good healthcare system and democracy? I, I think the, the, the relationship is absolutely fundamental so let's let's start with democracy and um i i want to i want to point out along the way that freedom one of the things which is most interesting about freedom house is that it applies its standards to all the all the countries of the world including the country in which it happens to reside and freedom house has been very useful at pointing out ahead of other people weaknesses in established democracies including the the, the united states um i i think that if we start with democracy it's like echoing, echoing Mike's sentiments. It's normal that people have different values. I wouldn't want it any other way. It's normal that people have different emotions. That, that's, that makes us human. But in order for us to have the kinds, of, the kinds of relationships and the kinds of institutions that create the possibility for democracy, we have to have something like a common set of facts. If we have different emotions, different values, and different facts, then civil society becomes impossible because we can't cooperate in the, in the groups that teach us about cooperation and democracy and compromise. If we don't have common sets of facts, then we can't have law because law depends on common findings of facts. If we, can't have, if we don't have uh, factuality, if we don't have the value of truth and if we don't have facts, we can't defend our own interests. So voting, you know, I agree with Mike about it, the voting is absolutely essential. But if I don't know anything about which candidate put mercury in my water, if I don't know that because there's no local reporting, then my vote is suddenly a lot less important than it used to be. So for all these reasons, you have to have, you have to believe in truth and you have to have the institutions that generate those facts because the facts don't come out of nowhere and the facts are not what we feel. I mean, one of, the, one of the big weaknesses in American public life, and it's one that Mr. Trump really skillfully encourages, is the confusion between what I happen to feel right now and what is the truth. In fact, the truth is almost never what we feel right now. It's always a challenge to what we feel right now. And that challenge is what makes enlightened, uh, freedom-oriented democratic politics possible. The moment that freedom, the moment that we think that freedom and democracy is just about how we feel, 
then we fall prey to the people, the people who are good at making us feel a certain way. Some people call that populism. Or we fall prey to, in, in, the, in, the modern time, in modern times, we fall prey to the algorithms, the social media. They're very good at making us feel one way or another. So in all those ways, truth is essential. And then, you know, the, 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 coming to health, the main thing which went wrong, I think, I mean, others might disagree, and I'm sure the two of you will have your opinions, but I think the main thing which went wrong in early 2020 um, was that we didn't search for the truth. We were not interested in how many people had been infected. And because the, 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 because the virus wasn't going to sit around and wait until we started looking for the facts, it just spread. And, and by the time we got around to testing, it was too late. And the testing is fundamental. I mean, it goes right down to this distinction that this argument that Plato makes to pick up your word about tyranny. Plato says that the tyrant is not going to want to hear the truth. The he doesn't use the word yes men or sycophant, but you know, the tyrant is going to want to hear that everything is all right. Whereas in the democratic situation, you have to have factuality because if you have factuality, then you know that you can protect your own interests. The leader has to respond to the factual world. So the fact that Mr. Trump is so specifically and so consistently against tests, precisely as he says himself, because the high numbers make him feel bad, right? They make him look bad. That's the way you would expect a tyrannical personality to express itself. Because we chose not to have the factual knowledge, now we have, now we have all the death. So that's, I mean, that's a pretty simple example of the, of the integral connection between believing in truth and searching for truth and, and health. Uh, Mike, reading uh, Tim's book, The Week After the Bob Woodward Revelations, is, is quite eerie. There's an enormous prescience to his book about this relationship between uh, truth and democracy, given that Woodward has shown that Trump himself was lying. Uh, what is your take at Freedom House about this relationship between truth and democracy? Do you agree with Tim? I've heard a lot of people suggest that there's 40 or 45% of people who are now supporting Trump, they don't care whether he's lying or not. It's simply become acceptable. Can you lie in politics? Can lying become acceptable? And can we maintain a healthy democracy? Or when lying becomes acceptable, does democracy die? Well, let me say this. I'm very much in agreement with Tim about the importance of truth and really about the importance of uh, having an independent arbiter of the facts, if you will. Uh, you know, I think Senator Moynihan famously talked about you're entitled to have your opinions, but not your own facts or something to that effect. And I do think as a former journalist and as someone who has you know, really tracked and thought about these issues for, for many, many years, of, of all the different freedoms and rights that we track at Freedom House, you know, one that I personally am deeply concerned about is this kind of constellation of issues around, you know, free expression, the independent media, uh, and the um, free expression, that if you, and again, I think you have to, again, see this as a phenomenon that predated President Trump. I mean, it goes back to, you know, 30, 40 years, where we've had basically kind of a decomposition of kind of the, the, the traditional media. And uh, I mean, I think like when I was a reporter and thinking about, uh, uh, Newt Gingrich and the attacks that he made on the on the press at the time and talk radio. I mean, these are not, you know, unfamiliar uh, approaches by politicians, but they've been put on steroid because of the social media and because of the internet. And I think that's actually sort of an important thing, I think, just to dwell upon for a minute that like the big difference between now and then when I was started off as a journalist is the internet, Facebook and so forth. And so this is, uh, you know, we have not yet been able as a society, as a world, to really balance the, uh, 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 you know, the need for free expression, which I believe in, but also the ways in which really malevolent actors can, can exploit uh, the openness of the internet to also pose their own kind of threat to Democrats and it, it, to democracy. And you, you saw that, for instance, in the 2016 election or you saw with the Russian interference or in Ukraine. And, and I really think in terms of healthcare, one of the greatest casualties so far over the past six or seven months from, uh, uh, from COVID-19 is the uh, continuing erosion uh, and attacks on the press and on free expression. You see many all around the world, dozens of countries 
you know, enacting new restrictions on the media, new restrictions on the press. And so this is, uh, you know, I, 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 I like to say, I'm talking to my colleagues at Freedom House, the, uh, this started off as a, as a healthcare crisis, it's become an economic crisis, and it's also a, a democracy crisis. Mike, you, you guys at Freedom House are very good at league tables. Where does America come on the league table now when it comes to democracy? The, the what table? Uh, league table, you know, who, 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 who is the most and least democratic? How's America doing at the moment? You know, we're, we're still a free country. We, uh, we, we still do pretty well in our ratings. Uh, I think, uh, to give you some analogies, uh, I think 10 years ago, we were closer in terms of our scores to the strong democracies of Western Europe, uh, you know, like uh, UK, France, Germany. We're now a bit below them and closer to some uh, other countries. You know, candidly, off the top of my head, I can't remember who's exactly at our level, but uh, I think our last uh, Freedom of the World report in March uh, said that the United States was roughly around 50 out of, out of the 200 or so countries that we uh, that we that we rate, and that's really I think that's a very it's a big challenge. To, uh, it's fiftieth, so it's not. So uh, Tim, you've made your name as a as a historian and analyst of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, your book Bloodlands, for example, is a wonderful treatment of of, of, of the various kinds of horrors of the twentieth century. I, I'm not sure if you've written a book exclusively about America before. Perhaps you have, but certainly this book is about America. It's not about Eastern Europe. Have you brought your intellectual skills of, 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 of analyzing Central and Eastern Europe to America? In your mind, is America the new bloodland? Um, so, I mean, I, I'm gonna start from the less provocative end of the question. Um, of course, I mean, just like, just like Mike's a journalist, you know, Mike's had experience around the world, Mike's had experience in Africa, we don't leave our experience behind, you know, you, the things that you experience first person or you experience through sources or you think you've understood are, are, are what you can then bring to another, to another conversation. So I, I, I think the United States has the problem that Americans would react with a shiver and, and, and a reflexive categorical no to your question. I think we have the problem that we are exceptionalists and we tend to think that those bad things happen to other people, by other people, on the, on the, on the other side of some ocean, but we are democracy and democracy is us. Um, and uh, as some of my colleagues um, who are students of fascism put it in a recent article in the New Republic, that it, precisely thinking that you're exceptional is the best way to become one more dictatorship. So that's, that's our problem. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna turn it around a little bit. Where I start from is that it, history is one history. The things that happened in the first half of the 20th century we know can happen because they did happen. The people who lived in Nazi Germany, for example, in the 1930s are not so very different from us. And they're not in every respect worse than us. In some respects, they're probably better, which should give us some pause. So what I think history does is it gives us a range of possible political practices that might work. So for example, the Reichstag fire. The Reichstag fire in Nazi Germany is an example of emergency politics. Some surprising thing happens, you blame your enemies and you use that to consolidate power and declare a permanent state of emergency. That happened in a particular way in Nazi Germany. The, the Reichstag is never gonna be set on fire again in February, 1933. However, that kind of politics is a model for other tyrants to follow. And it's something that we can then watch out for. Or to go, or to go broader, uh, fascism and communism are both reactions to globalization. They're both ways of dealing with globalization. Uh, so when you're worried about your own democratic politics, you can ask yourself, is my country finding a way to deal with globalization? Are we looking for universal principles? Are we looking for reciprocity? Are we looking for a place in the world? Or are we rejecting it? Are we saying that we're on our own, we're gonna do something completely different. There are no universal principles. They're only our ideas. There are no international laws. They're only our laws. If your country is doing things like that, it doesn't mean you're gonna become the Soviet Union or you become Nazi Germany, but it, these are the kinds of signs that history gives us that we should be, that we should be aware. So, 
I, I mean, I write about America in a different way because it's my country and I care about it. You know, our, our malady is a prescription, you know, that when I say healthcare should be a human right, when I say that uh, freedom starts with children, when I say that the truth will set us free, when I say the doctor should be in charge, much as, I, much as I like other countries, I'm not prescribing for other countries, I'm prescribing for America because it's the country that I live in, it's the country that I care about, and I think these things would be good for us. I mean, some of, the, some of the examples of how healthcare can go wrong, I draw from other countries as well, but what I care about is, is America. So I'm trying to bring together some things I understand with some things I care about, sure. Finally, we've got five minutes left, uh, and always we leave the most important questions to the end. I'm going to give each of you an opportunity to be a doctor. I don't know if you brought your white coats with you. Um, if there's one thing in the next year or two, Mike, that we can do to strengthen American democracy, I, I accept that you and Tim have uh, a different take on the maladies of American democracy, but as you suggested, it's certainly not in ideal health. If it can improve that 50th position, if it can get up the league table, what needs to be done that's practical in America today? How can America strengthen its democracy over the next year or two, whether or not Biden or Trump is elected to office? Because we, we, we can't determine that. Well, I think one thing I would say is it's important to recognize that there's not like a silver bullet. Uh, uh, I just think this idea that we can do one thing that's going to solve everything and it's going to go away. Well, a beginning. I, 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 I accept that. I'm not suggesting you have a silver bullet. But I'm, but I'm going to say, I mean, the one thing that I think about is that we have to return to a, a politics that addresses the problems of people. I mean, I think one reason for the disillusionment in democracy to the extent that it exists or around the world is that uh, whether right or wrongly, uh, governments are not seen to be, you know, solving, you know, real problems that affect real people. And I think that's certainly true in the United States. If you, if you think about, as Tim has said, the healthcare system or the immigration system, uh, uh, you know, the, the economic plight of, 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 of people uh, all over, you know, especially in, in the Rust Belt. I mean, there's all sorts of different problems that, that the political system has not solved. So I think, you know, I, I, I do think if you look at polling, there's, there's a lot of agreement on some of these issues. I, I think there's actually, I suspect a lot of polling that would support, you know, a more aggressive effort to kind of solve the healthcare crisis along the lines that, that, that Tim is su suggesting. But I think, you know, the, the House and the Senate and the president have to actually agree and try to work together to try to, to solve these problems. I think that, that may be a little bit Pollyannish, but I think that democracy will has to be shown to be solving real problems. Tim, let me leave it with you finally. Um, my only, I wouldn't say criticism of my book, of your book, my only reservation is that while you're brilliant on the maladies, you're less convincing on how to, 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 to make America better. Uh, we know how hard it is to reform the American medical system. I mean, Obama tried eight years and, and we know where we're at with that. So this idea of a, a single payer system, a socialized m m medical solution, doesn't seem practical in America, particularly in America that is so divided. Is that fair or would you disagree with that? Well, I hope, I hope it's not fair. I mean, so here's how I see it. I think that we've got ourselves tied up in this country with the idea that freedom is on one side and healthcare is on the other side, right? So you've said socialized medicine a couple of times, which is like, that's a button pushing phrase. Immediately, if you say socialized medicine, you're gonna lose a whole part of the country. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about something more fundamental. Health is not on one side and freedom is not on the other side. If we want to have more freedom, we have to have better health. And if we want to have better health, we also have to have more freedom. We have to be able to choose our leaders freely, which is also a problem. Because as Mike says, the polling suggests that if we did have clear representative, representative democracy, we would have a different healthcare system as a matter of fact, because that's what Americans want. Americans actually want a different healthcare system than they have. I think it's fair to say that Americans don't want to be dying younger than people in comparable countries every year. I think it's fair to say that Americans aren't happy that life expectancy in this country peaked in 2014. I think there are very few Americans who are happy that so many of us died during this pandemic. I don't mean to make a rhetorical point here. I think this is actually reflect, I mean, I think I'm reflecting what Americans actually want. When you say it's hard, of course it's, of course it's hard, but part of the reason why it's difficult is in the concepts. 
If we say, well, we can't have this, we can't have healthcare as a right because it will cost a lot. No, it won't. We pay more for healthcare than any other developed country and we get less. If we had better healthcare, we would save lives and we would save money. If we say we can't have healthcare because it violates our individual rights, wrong. It's exactly the opposite. If we have healthcare, we, our individual rights will flourish. That's the only thing I can contribute. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not. You know. I'm not going to be the lobbyist who pushes this through. The only thing that I can contribute is my my intuition, which comes from being very sick and from listening to other people who are very sick and to listening to doctors and nurses. My intuition is that we are wrong to separate health and freedom and that we're less free because we do so and less healthy because we do so. I think there's an argument to be made to people who are conservative as well as an argument to be made for people who are not conservative that if we want a free country, we have to make a big change, a big change, not so much for you and me and Mike, but a big change for our children. If you want our children to be living in a free country, this is something that we have to fix. Uh, the uh, the Q&A button is lighting up every time uh, uh, one of our speakers uh, makes a point. It seems to add a question. So, Nate, over to you. We've got 15 minutes left. Perhaps you can group some of the questions so we'll get them all in. Thanks, Andrew. Hi, everyone. This is Nate from the Bertelsmann Foundation. Um, yeah, as Andrew said, I'm going to try to group them together and get to as many as possible uh, over the next 15 minutes. Uh, the first couple on healthcare and democracy. Uh, with COVID, we are being confronted this year with the fallout from a flawed U.S. healthcare system and a government that uh, isn't listening to the doctors. Uh, have we underestimated how an epidemic curtails our freedoms? Uh, and then a second by Alfred Weller, who asks, do you view life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from the Declaration of Independence more as a grouping or as a hierarchy? And I think what he's getting uh, at there, and uh, sorry if I'm putting words in your mouth, Alfred, but um, getting into the heads of our founding fathers, should more emphasis be placed on uh, right to good health, right to life? Uh, is it possible that the founding fathers saw this as a right? Who wants to take that? Tim should go. Okay, so I want to I want to I want to agree with 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 the questioner and with all the Americans who think this epidemic has reduced our freedom. Of course, it's an epidemic. Of course, a lockdown reduces your freedom. You know, of course, this has been a reduction of freedom. The, the uh, dying is also a reduction of freedom. You know, being sick is a reduction of freedom. We don't always think about it that way, but it certainly is. Uh, the, the, the question is how we could have avoided it. And I mean, from my point of view, part of the problem is with the private healthcare system. You can't be prepared for a pandemic if you're trying to make a quarterly profit. You just can't. A private healthcare system allows you to gag doctors legally, so doctors cannot tell you on the op-ed pages what's actually going on. Um, and then the other problem, is, as, as Mike stressed earlier, is that we had bad leadership, which in my view, entirely ignored the facts. And that left us less free. This year shows us how freedom and health are related negatively. You lose one, then you lose the other. Then you lose some more of the one, then you lose some more of the other. By the same token, they're also related positively. If you can get back some of your health, you're gonna have some more freedom. And if you can get back some of your freedom, then you can vote the right way and you can get some more help. So they're related negatively and positively. Right now, we're in a downward spiral and that downward spiral, you know, which I experienced at a personal level, but which we're also experiencing as a society, shows us how they're related. I appreciate the question about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think, I think they're, they're meant to be understood as co-equal. They're supposed to have a right to each of them. And Jefferson, when he's discussing the pursuit of happiness, also talks about health. Jefferson says the only, the only thing that's more important than health in public life is ethics, right? So I think it's very easy to make the case that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all three of those involve health. All three of them. If you have a right to life, then you would have a right to, uh, to the means of staying alive. If you have a right to liberty, then you have a right to be able to move about, say, and do the things that you want to do. And above all, pursuing happiness. That to me is the essential, essential concept here. Too much talk in America is about how freedom, I want to have a narrow notion of freedom. You know, I want to suffer because suffering is somehow good. I can't have more freedoms. That would somehow be wrong. That's not what Jefferson thought. The pursuit of happiness is a very expansive idea. And there's no reason why we couldn't think, okay, a right to health. I mean, specifically the founders said that the rights that are not enumerated in the constitution should be, can also be considered, right? I think a right to health makes all the other rights possible. And we, we happen to know 
we happen to know that the founders were very concerned about health. From their correspondence, we know with one another, they were very concerned about how health got in the way of democracy, and they were very concerned about how disease got in the way of freedom. So I think there's a, there's a historical case to be made here, which is not hard to make. Uh, yeah, I thought that that was one of the, the, the more interesting things in your book about uh, how, how the founders were so affected by health and their sense of the vulnerability of their bodies, I guess, now can be mirrored in our, in our concern about the vulnerability of our democratic system. Um, Mike, did you want to add something to, uh, to Tim's point? No, no, I think that he said it well. You should keep going with questions. Tim? Uh, sorry, Nate? More uh, questions. Then, yeah, the next set here is um, looking at truth and education and democracy. Um, we got a couple that kind of overlap, but I'll um, try to see if we can find a few different uh, threads here. Um, on from Regis, Regis Shields on voters not being pro-authoritarian, anti-democratic. Um, what if voters are not well informed, uh, being fed lies? Can voters in that case, uh, even in the act of voting, be anti-democratic? Uh, and then from Dominic Ballone, uh, along the, the similar, 40% are willing to cheer on autocracy and nationalism. Um, is there something in the public education system uh, that has failed people uh, in, in teaching them the meaning of democracy? Um, from Wolfgang Mössinger, what uh, role does education play in fighting the tendency to suppress truth? Uh, if people learn to be more critical thinkers, uh, what is that, does that make it more difficult for populists? And then from Garrett Mitchell, uh, do we have uh, any info from Freedom House on the relationship between civic education uh, and the health of democracy? Um, so this is a topic we like at How to Fix Democracy. Always comes up. Uh, is there something education can be doing? Mike, let's start with you on this one. Well, I certainly think that critical thinking and critical reflection is, at, is really necessary to build, uh, to have a healthy democracy. Uh, and I think that to the extent that the American education system, you know, has failed to uh, inculcate that kind of critical thinking on a widespread basis, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's something that needs to be addressed. And I'm aware of many, many important and worthy initiatives that are ongoing around the country to really stimulate uh, a revival of civic education and critical thinking. That's just a major focus of the of, 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 of the efforts for those interested in strengthening our democracy. And I, and I do hope that, uh, that over the next five to 10 years that those efforts will get properly funded. Uh, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, it's better that people you know, be able to think for themselves uh, what, to, uh, what to think about a fact and as opposed to you know, people who control magazines or TV stations or networks you know, telling people what to think. It's better that people think for themselves. So I would just say, I absolutely agree with the premise of all those questions that, that civic education is really important. If I could, uh, Andrew, I just want to say one other thing that I've been thinking about just on the issue of American exceptionalism that, that Tim was talking about earlier that if I could, you know, just circle back to if it's okay with you, uh, just very quickly. I, I do think the issue of American hubris and American you know, def defaults, you know, it's, it's worth being humble about that. But I do think that if we're going to have a revival of democracy in the world, if we're going to, you know, if this current kind of backlash against uh, democracy is going to be defeated, I think it's really important for America to be playing an important role there. Because I, I, I do think, it may sound Pollyannish, but I certainly think at Freedom House, we do believe that American leadership, both in kind of exemplifying democratic uh, values and also, you know, uh, supporting others in their quest for democracy is really critical. And, and what I really worry about is that if, if America doesn't do that, then I, you know, then you see what happens with countries like Russia or China stepping into the void. So I do think that one can be critical of America, but also one can also recognize that we have an enormous role and have played an enormous constructive role on these issues. Uh, you know, there are very few, you know, democracies that have been able to kind of uh, deal with things like the Great Depression or, you know, after uh, or, or, or just mobilizing within two years to gonna defeat Nazi Germany uh, 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 to, lead a, you know, to lead an effort there along with uh, 
uh, the Soviet Union. So I just think uh, there's an enormous amount of capacity and that's been the basic premise of Freedom House that America can be a leader and I still am enough of an idolist to think that that can still be the case. Tim, very briefly, as an educator on education and democracy. Uh, n number one, lying is a big problem. I mean, the ancient Greeks made this point. They, the reason they thought democracy wasn't going to work is that people would be overwhelmed by lies. And if you are lied to and you believe it, you're not actually free. That means that freedom is a high standard because and it means that if you care about freedom, second point, you have to generate and support the institutions which put the facts out there for people because facts don't arrive automatically. Local news is a big one. I, I, I want to agree with Mike about that. If you want to be exceptional, you have to be critical. I'd like to see America be exceptional in how critical we are because democracy only functions precisely because you choose you realize you made a wrong choice and then you choose something else. If you think you're always right, if you think you never have to say you're sorry, you're really no longer functioning in a democracy anymore. So I think being, ex I would like for us to be exceptionally self-critical, especially right now when we've got so much to be self-critical about. And that means like as an educator, I think US history is very important. But, and by US history, I mean the history of, of, of African-Americans the history of the country, which allows us to see the good aspects, which Mike mentions, but also allows us to see the things, not just to feel bad about them. That's not the point. The, the emotions and the guilt are not the point. The woke moments when you cry are not the point. The point is to realize that these are the things which actually hold us all back, not just blacks, not just immigrants, not just Native Americans, but they hold us all back as a country. If we get the history wrong, then we, then we have the wrong ideas about innocence and guilt, we can't build a welfare state. We can't do the things that we have to do because we have the history, we have the history wrong. So, and then an old fashioned conservative plea, we should have civics class. You know, if you, if you don't teach the constitution, people's default way of thinking about politics is the leader principle. They start talking about leaders. Our country is not about leaders. It's about a judicial branch, a legislative branch and an executive branch. Kids should, kids should be studying the constitution. It's not a perfect document, but it's a document which is um, which is a model in many ways and which in, in, in whose language I think has largely been forgotten in the discussions we were having, you know, about whether we should have a leader, this kind of leader, that kind of leader. Uh, democracy is not about leaders. Democracy is about representation of people. Democracy is about institutions which make us as free as we can be. It's not about a leader. It's not about an individual person. Yeah, Mike wrote, when it comes to race, Mike wrote a wonderful piece uh, in June, Racial Injustice Remains the Great Weakness of American Democracy. I don't know if he was writing uh, from the Freedom House or from a personal point of view. That, of course, is the subject for another show. Uh, Nate, we've got five or six minutes left. Could we get a couple more questions, please? Yeah, uh, five or six minutes. Perfect time to make predictions about the future. Uh, Looking at on tyranny today, any predictions on what's going to happen on election day, uh, on inauguration day? And then uh, a question uh, about Trump in particular. Why is it the US, why is the US the country that got a Trump? I think, I think it's fair to say at this point that he's pretty unique amongst the populists elected in recent years. Not sure if we can cover that in four minutes, but um, just thoughts on the, the next couple of months on this presidency. Uh, and perhaps I'll throw in one other question to them, uh, given the subject of this discussion. Um, will the October or November surprise be a health surprise? Who wants to predict the outcome in November? Easy question. Mike, Tim? Yeah, yeah sure. I'll, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, so um, number one, great point about Trump being different from other authoritarians. Uh, I, I have written a book about America. It's called The Road to Unfreedom. And in that book, I use a phrase called sado-populism. Uh, Mr. Trump is a sado-populist. Unlike other populists who at least promise that they're going to redistribute from the wealthy to the less wealthy, Mr. Trump redistributes from the less wealthy to the wealthy. Um, and he works, in a, he works in a situation of pain. What he, what he expects of people is that they, they suffer for no particular reason on the expectation that other people are gonna suffer more. And that's the dark side of American politics. And Mr. Trump is a master at that. He's a master of making you upset. Um, he's a master of making, making whether, whether you like him or don't like him, he's a master of the negative emotions. That's a little bit different from other authoritarians. And that is characteristically American. It has to do, in my view, with keeping health out of our idea of freedom. Because we've reached a point where there's so much pain and now so much death, in our daily politics. We're different from other democracies in that way. Other democracies don't have this level of suffering, health problems, declining expectations. Trump is a magical manager of those kinds of emotions. 
thanks for mentioning on tyranny. Um, a lot of the things I said in on tyranny in, in early 2017 seems seem surprising at that moment. And, you know, a lot of them have that have since have since happened. Um, what I was trying to say in that book, though, is not that we're on some kind of road where things are inevitable. I was trying to say that it's up to us to make the right choices. And that is still true between now and November. And by the way, I'm not telling people how to vote when I say make the right choices. I'm saying, let's have an election. Let's agree we should have an election. Let's agree that the vote should be counted. Let's agree that regardless of whom we're voting for, we want our votes to be counted and that we're gonna protest if our votes are not counted. Let's agree that that's the way that it's gonna work. Because sadly, um, you know, Mike may or may not wanna say this, but like, this is what, you know, this is what his organization proves in its work day after day. Sadly, there are ways to stay in power which do not involve winning elections, right? So the question of who's going to be in the White House in February 2020 is actually not the same question as who gets the most votes or the most electoral votes in November, December 2000, 2020. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say that, that that largely depends upon us. We're in a moment where our participation, regardless of our particular views about parties, where our participation as citizens is, is absolutely essential, because this could go very wrong. Citizenship then is everything, Tim. At least in, it will be in November. Uh, well, I don't think Mike would disagree with me if I say that the ability to think that you are part of a larger civil society in which everyone has a right to vote, in which we repeat the game every two years or every four years, believing in that, Believing that your side can lose and that that's okay. Believing that your neighbor has different opinions and that that's okay, but that we have rules, that we have the rule of law and that we should follow that to the best of our ability. That's necessary for a democracy. We have to, we have, to have the rule of law to have democracy. And that means that sometimes your candidate wins and sometimes my candidate wins, but it doesn't mean that we assume that our candidate winning is the same thing as democracy. We're going, we've gone pretty far down that road of thinking that if my emotions are not the emotions that triumph, if my guy is not the guy that triumphs, then let's throw the whole system out. No, the system is, the system is so much better than the alternatives and we could make the system so much better than it is. So it, it's, it's very, it, citizenship isn't everything, but the belief that we are together, right? That, that the belief that we do democracy together and that other people have the same kind of right to a hope that their ideas and their values will win, that kind of reciprocity, that kind of solidarity is absolutely necessary. Uh, Mike, let's end with you. I'm not asking you to predict who's going to win the election, but how optimistic or pessimistic are you that there will be some sort of descent into violence in, in November or, or December 2020? Uh, what is Freedom House's sense of, of of what is to come in American democracy? Well, look, I think that Tim put his nail on something, which is that it's really essential to have a fair vote that is seen as legitimate by a large cross-section of Americans. And I believe I'm a kind of congenital optimist that I do believe that that's possible, but I do think that we are closer to problems than I would than I would rather than I'm comfortable with. You know, if you if you look around the world and you look at the way that other countries uh, have dealt with elections, you know, it's very possible, as some said, for people to rig elections. Uh, there's all sorts of different ways that you know the facade of elections, but the actual reality is 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 not that case. And so it's really essential that the vote on November 3rd, uh, uh, really the, the vote in a couple of weeks leading up to November 3rd, because hopefully people will be able to vote uh, by mail as they wish or, or, or dropping off absentee ballots. I mean, the point is, is that it's really crucial that that vote be seen as fair and legitimate. And, and that uh, it's really important that for people of both parties, whether or not their person wins, that they, uh, that they do everything that they can possibly can to respect you know, the process, because without that process, we're lost. I want to thank both of you. Again, a, a wonderful How to Fix Democracy conversation for, 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 for September. Both of you were, were brilliant, as always. I also want to remind our audience, uh, our LitHub audience, that they can see all the How to Fix Democracy uh, interviews going back two or three years to people like uh, Ivan Krastev uh, on howtofixdemocracy.org. 
And I want to remind all of you that we will have another show in the middle of October, uh, probably focusing exclusively on the upcoming election. So Mike Abramovich and Tim Schneider, thanks so much for a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.